Uh, Zane, thank you so much. And all of you, thank you so much for just inviting me in. Um, man, this, just this worship this morning as I just came into the tent, I just felt so heavy, the, the presence of the Lord in this place. And it's just bringing me to tears. And I'm like, I'm not usually somebody that cries, but so God's been doing something in my heart where every time I'm in worship or every time I'm with him, my heart just begins to just fall apart. Because I've just... I just get this sense of awe of how wonderful he is and how amazing it is that I have the opportunity and the honor and the blessing to know him and to get to know him, that we can actually know the creator. We can know our heavenly father. We can know our Lord and our Savior is such a beautiful thing. And then my heart breaks because I know so many people, friends, and even my own family who do not know Jesus. They do not know Jesus. They do not know the freedom that I have. They do not know the the freedom that I get to walk in every single day. They do not know the love that I experience every single day, and it breaks my heart because I know it breaks the Lord's heart as well. But then when I see so many of you here doing something that the majority of the world will never do and never wants to do unless they are led to the one who will bring them to it, And I see you, and I am just so overwhelmed with joy because each one of you said yes to Jesus, to the calling, to step out. Maybe you're not even sure what you're doing here. Maybe you got here, and you're like, I don't know why I'm here, but God knows why you're here. He knows why you're here, and these next three months here and then three months on outreach, you're going to experience the most amazing thing you could experience. Like the, like the worship song we were singing, the love of God has pierced me, wounded me for the best way possible. And you guys are stepping into this place you're going to experience it. I am so honored and blessed that you guys invited me just to share the love of God's word. I, I'm just, I'm so honored and blessed. And, and Zana, as you were saying, and Cos, as you were saying, just that, God is doing something. God is doing something amazing. That, that, that word that you gave me, he was talking about the keys. I got that. Someone else gave me the exact same word yesterday. First time I met him. First time I met him, he's like, I got this word for you. We, were, we had lunch together. He's got this word for you. I wasn't going to share it, but after talking with you, I feel like I'm supposed to share it. And he's like, I feel like God's giving you these keys to go around and unlock these. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? What is going on? God, and it's not me. It's not about me. It's not like there's something special about me at all. It's not me. It's him. It's what he's doing. And we just get to jump in with him. He's doing something amazing. He's doing something just miraculous, even right here between our schools on this campus and in the world that we get to say, yes, I want to join in, God. I want to join in with what you're doing. And that's what the word of God is, the Bible. Sometimes we look at the Bible as this foreign thing that's disconnected from God or disconnected from us that that maybe we need a special gifting to go into. But no, what it is, it's an invitation to know God more. That's what the Bible is. It's an invitation to know God more. And we have the privilege and the honor of diving into its words each and every day, whenever we want to. And that's not a privilege that everybody in this world has. There's over 2,000 languages that don't even have the word of God in their native tongue, that can't even read the word of God, that don't have access to a Bible. And I, I think about that, and I think about how my life has been transformed by the word of God. By the Bible. My life has li- just been transformed, radically changed. My mind, as, as Paul says, 
We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. My mind has been renewed so much by the word of God. Like my mind used to be, I mean, it's not perfect. <laughs> There's still thoughts that go on in my mind that I'm like, I don't like that I think those thoughts and I don't like that I, things come into my head. But it's, man, where I've come from, how my mind used to be, and how blind I was to it. I didn't even realize that I was blind. I was shackled and in chains, and I didn't even realize it. But as John 8 says, the truth shall set you free. And the word of God is truth. And I'm like, man, my mind has been freed to know God and to love God. And so just, you know, as, as Zane asked me to, to join in with this, like, as I was praying, I was like, man, for this morning, I just, I just want to share my heart and my testimony with you guys. Just Because I want you guys to get to know me. I don't want to just be some random guy up here talking to you guys that you don't feel that you at least know a little bit. And, and so I'm, just this, this morning, I'm just going to share how my testimony, but really how has the Bible impacted my life? And, and really the, the Bible itself is, is what got me on this road of following Jesus. And so just kind of going back in time. I was, uh, I, I come from a very large family. I have seven siblings, four older brothers, a younger sister, and two younger brothers. Um, and we grew up in a Christian home. Uh, we were raised Christian in Washington State. Uh, yes, yes, a place called Castle Rock, Washington. It's this tiny, 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 tiny little town of a population of about 1,500 people. Uh, we lived on like five acres of land. We had like two neighbors. My best friend, my only friend growing up, his name was Jesse as well. Um, he lived like a mile down the street. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and so, but we were raised uh, in a Christian home. Uh, and then my parents ended up getting divorced. Um, my dad wanted to have a different kind of life. And uh, so he went off to do his own thing. And my mom was left with herself, and at the time, six kids, um, which, superhero, I don't know how, <laughs> especially when five of them are boys, and we were like crazy, wild animals. Um, and so, my mom had a huge, huge impact on my life. Uh, and I grew up, you know, through middle school, uh, knowing the Lord, having, even at a young age, having a, a close relationship with God. I'd go on walks and I'd just talk with God. It was, I don't know, it was him. It was him that kind of brought that in me. My mom kind of putting that in me. Um, and then my mom ended up getting remarried, and she had two more boys uh, with her second husband, my stepdad. And they wanted to move down to Temecula, California, uh, because they had a good football team there, and I was playing football at the time. Uh, and so we went down to Temecula, and it was good. I mean, it was a new school, new people, but it was all good. At this time, it was just me and my sister and my two younger brothers. Uh, but about a month into moving to Temecula, something happened. I remember the burn in my brain. I remember the night. My sister, my mom was reading my sister a bedtime story. I'm in the other room. And all of a sudden, you hear my sister scream. Run into the room, and my mom just collapsed on the floor. Grab my stepdad. He comes in. I, he tells me to call 911. He's trying to resuscitate her. I call 911. You know, the ambulance come, and they, they resuscitate her and bring her back. But she was without oxygen to her brain for like 15 minutes. And after about seven minutes, the brain starts to die off and get damaged. And so she was, she slipped into a coma. And so 
All of a sudden, it went, everything went from like, life's fantastic, new school, new football team, everything's going great, to all of a sudden, it felt like the rug under my feet was just ripped out. And I'm just like, what is happening? And all of a sudden, my mom's in the hospital. My stepdad is either working or at the hospital. And my sister stayed with my sister and my brother stayed with my grandparents. And I was just like at home alone all the time, ride my bike to school. I was at high school at the time, ride my bike to school, play football. And I was just like, what is going on? And like, it was during, that was like, it was the darkest time. I was 14 years old. I felt like, what's the point of even living? I actually contemplated suicide. And I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't stand it. And I was, I was alone. I was just sit at home alone all the time, just thinking about this. And uh, I remember I couldn't take it anymore. And so I called my dad up. I didn't really know my dad that well, but I just, I just needed to get away. I called my dad up and I was like, "Hey, can I live with you? Can I?" He still lived in Washington. He's like, "Yeah, sure." And so, like, without talking to anybody, I went to my high school. I don't know why they let me do this, but I dropped myself out. And they're like, okay. <laughs> I don't know why. It's so strange. They let me drop myself out at 14 years old. Um, but I dropped myself out of high school. I told my stepdad, and he's, he's just like, what are you talking? What are you doing? I'm like, my dad already bought me a plane ticket. I'm out of here. And so um, he's like, okay, I guess. And so I moved back with my dad. And then shortly after that, my mom woke up out of the coma. And so now I'm like, I just left. My mom woke up. What is going on? And now I'm, like, just torn. And, but the thing is, is she woke up out of the coma, but it was kind of the, because she had so much brain damage, it was a situation where, like, you'd walk into the room, and she had no short-term memory. And after about 15 seconds of a conversation, she'd completely forget, and it, this conversation would start all over again. Or if you walk out of the room and come back in, she completely forgot you just had that conversation. She also, she forgot that she was married to my stepdad. She thought she was still married to my dad. And it was just like... And in my mind, I remember thinking, this is like a cruel joke. It's like my mom's back, but she's not actually back. And I just felt like this is actually even worse almost. It's just like a cruel, cruel joke. And I remember thinking they're just being so, like, just angry and just kind of like, I, what, what, is, what is this life? And I continued to stay living with my dad. And high school became all about sports Drugs, drinking, partying, like I just didn't care about anything. Just didn't care. Um, I just wanted to have fun. I just wanted to escape. Um, I just, just really didn't care. And so I just kind of like drifted through high school. Um, and as soon as I graduated, I was like, I'm out of here. Like I just want to get out of this small town. I, I, I don't know why I moved here. Like I need to get out of here. And so during that time, my mom's memory actually did begin to recover. She never got to 100%, but she ended up getting like 90%. She could drive again. She could have full conversations. And it was like she was recovering and coming back. Total miracle. The doctors were like, this is impossible. She'll never come out of the coma. She comes out of the coma. Her brain will never recover. She'll be like this forever. Her brain recovers. Not 100%, but it recovers. It's like total miracle from God. Total miracle. And uh, so... After I graduate high school, me and my buddy pack up my car, drive down to L.A. Um, to go. We wanted to get into film. We used to make videos all the time. And he was going to go to the film school. I was going to go to animation school. And we were going to make movies together. Like, that was the big dream. So we moved down to L.A., packed my car, moved down to L.A. That was a, man, that was a, it was just a crazy experience. Like, I had no idea what we were doing. I come from a town of 1,500. Now we're going to L.A. Never been in a big city in my life. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, but, you know, we made it work. And, uh. L.A. was just, it was, a, it was a disaster for me. Like, I loved it at the time, but I loved it because, like, 
I wasn't following the Lord, and uh, all it did for me was it just, it, it, I was like in a dark hole, and all of a sudden I moved to L.A., and I just saw an even greater, bigger hole that went way further down, and I'm like, let's jump in, and, uh, and like everything just started getting way worse. The drugs got a lot harder, everything, you know, it just, my life became, I had a fake ID at 18 years old, and so like I was just living this life that was not me at all, and I was trying to be something that I wasn't, and and it, it just got worse and worse and worse. And, um, but the thing is, I was so blind to it, I actually loved it. Like, I didn't realize that I was literally destroying my life. And I was walking a road that was just so, that, that just led to death. But I was so blind to it, I actually loved it. Um, and then something happened. I was 19 years old. Um, my mom went back into the hospital. She was having heart problems. And, uh, and I, just, I just remember, I'm like, I can't, because she ended up going to the hospital in L.A. because the, the specialist they had. And I just remember being there and being like, I, I just can't be in the hospital again. I just can't do this again. And so I didn't, I didn't really visit her that much just because I was just like, I just can't be back here. I don't even want to think about this. I don't even want to deal with this. And then in November of 2009, my mom passed away. And I just like, <laughs> I pretended like I didn't even care. I just, it just pushed me more into drinking and drugs, and I was just like, you know what, whatever. It's just, hey, whatever, that's just how life is. And, uh, but subconsciously, something began to happen. I couldn't get this thought on my hand, head, what happened to my mom? Like, at this point, I'm like, do I, do I really believe in God? I don't know. But I was thinking, like, what happened to my mom? Like, because she believed this stuff 100%. Is she actually in heaven? Like, does that exist? Is that a real thing? Like, is God real? And I just couldn't get this thought out of my head. And at this point, I mean, in, in L.A., I mean, it, it, even then, like, there were no Christians around me. And I would go to places and people would just mock Christianity and make fun of Jesus and all just randomly. And so I had no Christians around me. But I just had this thought in my head, like, I couldn't get away. And I'm like, okay, God, if you're real, if you're real, you're going to speak to me, Right? If he's a living, real God, he's going to speak. So if you're real, you're going to speak to me. And, and the thought came in my head, and this is totally the Lord, but the thought came in, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it through your word, through the Bible. And so I had, a, I had an old Bible packed away. I pulled it out, and there's something in, in me just had this thought, you know what, I'm, going to read, I'm just going to read the New Testament. I'm going to read the whole thing. Never done it before. Just read the whole New Testament. See what happens. Um, and I started reading it. And I would, I would read it in, like, there was just, like, this, this, this hunger. I needed to know where my mom was. It was just, like, this hunger that was driving me to read the New Testament. And so, like, in between classes, when I was home alone, I would just sit there, and I would just read through the New Testament, and I would just start asking God questions. Like, okay, if you're real, you're going to respond to me. And the craziest thing happened. He responded. <laughs> it was so nuts. Like, I was, like, like, it wasn't, like, this audible voice, but all of a sudden, like, this peace came over me like I had never experienced before. And all of a sudden, these thoughts started coming to my head. I'm like, I didn't think that. What? I would never think that. Where did that come from? And, like, I, I realized that I, my favorite time of the day was when I was sitting there just reading the Bible and talking to God. Like, I was still partying, doing this stuff, but every time I was out, I was like, man, I just want to be reading my Bible. Man, I just, because it gave me such peace. You know, and, and again, like, I, didn't, I didn't really fully understand, like, what it meant to be a Christian and all that kind of stuff. I was just like, I just want to be in that. I just want to read the Bible and talk to God because it's the only time that I actually felt whole and complete. 
<clears throat> and so, and this is just me by myself with the Bible reading and talking. And like I, I reason that I'm either, either this is all real and God's actually speaking to me or I'm going insane. It's one of the two. Like there's no in between here. Like <laughs> I'm either going completely crazy um, or God's actually real. And so I just continue to seek after him. And, and, then, and then he asked me a question. And, uh, and so I, I, re- I remember the day. Um, it, was, uh, it was in 2010 at this point. It was March of 2010, end of March 2010. Um, and uh, at, at this point in my life, I was getting high and smoking weed at least once a day, twice, three times a day, every single day. Um, and I remember I was sitting there um, one morning. I was, didn't have school, didn't have work. And so I was, gonna, I was by myself at home, and I was going to smoke. And all of a sudden, this voice just kind of came in. Like, again, like, I was just, it was like, does God want you to do that? And I was like, what the? Right, whatever. Go back to it. Does God want you to do that? And I was like, I don't know. Does God care if I smoke weed? What? I Why would he care? About, I don't know. I was like, whatever. And then again, does God want you to do that? And I'm like, oh. And so I asked him, God, do you want me to do this? Like, is this something you don't want me to do? Do you want me to do this? And then this voice came in, and this question I will never forget, and this is the question that shaped the rest of my life. Would you be willing to give it up to know him more? And I was like, wait a minute. You mean there's more to this? You mean there's more than what? I, I thought it was just, I was like, I just love these times with the, you know, with the Bible and talking to God. I thought that's all it was. You mean there's more? And all of a sudden, I just thought about all, how every, every day, my favorite time of the day is when I was in the Word and talking to God. And I was like, yeah, I want more. And then the voice says, speak it out that you're going to give that up. And I was like, uh. I was like, well, um, uh. And like, literally, I'm sitting there at my kitchen counter for like a half an hour, just back and forth in my mind. All my friends do this. This is literally what we do every single day. We talk about it, all this kind of stuff. There, I'm not going to have any friends anymore. What are we going to do together? I'm just going to be alone. Like, just back and forth. Like, the battle was like just raging in my mind, and I'm just sitting there like this. And if like anybody saw me, they'd be like, what is he doing? I'm just like, you know, and so, and, and then, but again, it, it goes on, and then all of a sudden, just that question again pierces through all of it. Would you be willing to give this up to know him more? And like I was like, yeah, I, I want to know him more. I just want to know him more. And so I, he's like, so I spoke it out. I said, okay, God, I'm going to give this up. I'm done with this. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I was just like, oh, gosh, what did I just do? I was like, oh, no. I was like, because I was, I was, it was for me, it was like, it was legit. It was real. Like, I wasn't just saying these things because, like, there wasn't anybody around to say it to. This is just me and God. And so, like, I was like, this is a real commitment. And I'm like, I can't do this. And I started praying. I'm like, God, I can't do this. You're going to have to help me. I cannot do this. There's no way I can do this. Please, God, help me. And he did. Oh, my gosh, he did. <laughs> It was, it was so amazing. Whenever I was with my friends and hanging out, I, I didn't, and it's what I realized is that I was like, I can't run, aw- I can't avoid this and run away from it. 
I need to be around it, but still say no to it. Like, for that was the thought in my head. Like, I need to be able to say no to it. And so I would be around my friends, and they would be smoking, and they'd be like, here, you want some? I'm like, no, I'm good. And they're like, all right. And I was like, that was so easy. I thought it was going to be like this huge battle. That was so easy. Like, just, just, you just, oh, yeah, you just say no. Okay, that works, yeah. Um, and, and what happened is all of a sudden I started to, like, sober up. And for, like, the first time, I could, like, think clearly. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize how much of a cloud my mind was in because I had been doing this for so long. And I could actually think clearly. And then God started asking me more and more questions, which led me out of L.A. back to Washington. I ended up working with my dad for a little bit, ended up starting up um, uh, an eBay business that went really successful. Um, I ended up, ended up getting involved with a church. I ended up starting a small group. So I was back in Washington. I had a bunch of friends from high school. And, um, and of course, they all partied. Every single weekend, the weekend was at my buddy's house. It was a house party. And I moved back, and I'm like, hey, I can't do this anymore. I'm done with this kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, what? You're too good to hang out with us. You don't like us anymore. I'm like, no, it's not that. I just can't do that stuff anymore. I'd love to hang out with you, just not in that setting. Um, and so, like, I never got to see my friends because they were always doing that. And I'm like, man, I just, I just want to be around them. And, and I just I want them to know what I've, what I've come to know about this. And, and then I'm, I'm praying. And, like, Man, it was, it was, there was just something that God was doing inside of me because there'd be times where I would like be on my knees for like hours at a time just praying because I was like, I worked from home and it was just like, there was just this drive within me that, that, that was totally the grace of God over me. It wasn't because I was, there's something special about me. Again, it was just totally the grace of God over me. And I remember one time I was praying, God's like, why don't you start a Bible study and invite all your friends? And I'm like, because none of them will come. They don't want to do that. <laughs> And he's like, just invite him and see what happens. And I'm like, but, and he's like, and do it on Friday. And I'm like, yeah, right, Friday's when they party at his house. Nobody's going to be like, should I go to a Bible study or house party? I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of tough, right? And he's like, just invite him. Just invite him. What's going to happen? And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do it. And I had never led a Bible study. I had no idea what I was doing. But I'm just like, well, they're probably not going to come anyways. So I invite them all. They all said yes. They all wanted to come. And then I'm like, oh, no, what do I do? <laughs> and so I, like, get, like, a couple bags of chips, and, like, I invite them over, and I have some bags of chips, and I'm, they all come. And I'm like, oh, thanks for coming. I'm like, uh, I guess we're going to read the Bible together, I guess. And we start, like, reading through the, the Gospel of Matthew, and, like, we're all reading it, and I'm just, we're, like, taking turns, and I'm like, oh, man. And then all of a sudden, just, I, I just felt the presence of the Lord, and I just stopped. I'm like, you know what? Where are you guys at with this? Where, where are you guys at with your view on God? And that's just kind of the question. Everybody's like, you know what? I wish I was closer to him. I wish I was closer to him. I wish I was closer to him. And I was just like, oh, snap. <laughs> and so that Bible study was like so amazing. Every week they came. You know what? All my friends, they stopped partying. They started going to church. It was amazing. It was so amazing. And again, not, it was, all I did was say yes to God. It was him doing it. It was him doing it. And, like, we would just come together. We would read the Bible together, and we would just talk. And, like, it was more and more people started coming. Some, one of my friends brought his dad there. They had, a, they had, like, a broken relationship, and they, like, cried together and prayed together. And I'm like, what is happening, God? What are you doing? And it was just like, man, 
God, you are so good. And then this call of missions got put on my heart. And I'm like, I don't know any missionaries. I don't know what it means to be in missions. But it was just like every single day. I was like, missions, missions. I'm like, oh, I can't get that out of my head. And so I like went online, Googled missions. Go on missions trip. And like, I'd like apply and they'd be like, okay, what's your background? What's your degree? What's this? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have any of those things. I'm like, I just want to go somewhere. I just want to go somewhere on a mission trip. And I just got denied everywhere. And then I was with talking to my brother and he told me about, he was like, I had this friend that did this thing called YWAM. He went to Jordan or something, said he really liked it. I'm like, okay, Google it, found it. And I'm like, all right, that looks awesome. I apply, get accepted. I'm like, that was so easy. Yes. I'm going to YWAM. I ended up going to Townsville, Australia, did my DTS there. It was fantastic. Went to Papua New Guinea for my outreach. Went, it was so good. We went backpacking from like village to village to village. Like it just everything on our back and like just our longest trek was like 13 hours straight. And I was just like, what am I doing? Like the most physically toughest thing ever, but God showed up in the most amazing ways. And it just, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I never want to not do this because this is so much better than anything I've ever done, ever, period. This is so amazing. Um, and then God's like, oh, hey, by the way, I want you to study the word more thoroughly. I want you to get to know my word because it's the foundation. And so I'm like, I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And then I had a staff that was talking about this thing called SBS. He's like, oh, I want to do SBS. He kept talking about it. He's like, you studied the Bible for nine months. And I'm like, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> study, not me. <laughs> Don't like it. Um, and, but God spoke to me. And so I'm like, okay, God, I'll do it. So I came here to do my SBS. And, man, I, like I, I, I'm, not a study, I'm still not a studier. I don't like reading books. I don't like studying. I don't like really writing. Um, I'm, I'm much more hands-on. I'd rather just be, like, talking with people than, like, reading a book. And so SBS was, like, it was challenging for me. But man, what is it? it was like the best thing ever. Oh my God. I like, so I went into my SBS thinking that I was just going to learn about the Bible. What I didn't realize is that as I was studying the Bible, because it's living and active and actually cuts deep, I didn't realize that God was going to start bringing up stuff into my, in my heart and in my mind that he's like, actually, I'm going to cut that out of you. And you didn't even realize. And so SBS, not, it wasn't that the, the, necessarily the work was so hard. What was so hard was myself and actually allowing God to transform me. And it, and I, but I was stuck in this position for nine months where God just got to work on my heart and work on my mind. And I couldn't go anywhere. And it just wrecked me. And then, of course, God's like, I want you to come back on staff. And then my first year staffing, I got to teach the Bible. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I just came alive. I'm like, I never thought ever would I actually enjoy teaching, let alone teaching the Bible. And I just fell in love with it. And then my first year staffing, I was with my, uh, me and my school leader were playing Mario Kart. And he's like, he's like, hey, how long do you think, because we have to give a two-year commitment when we staff. He's like, how long do you think you're going to be? Are going to be here for two years or longer? I'm like, oh, probably longer. He's like, okay. That was it. Week later, we're getting coffee, and he's like, hey, the reason I asked you that, this is my last year leading the school. I don't have anybody to lead it. Will you lead it? And I'm like, I'm like two months into my first time staffing. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I just felt the Lord say, do it. And so I'm like, okay. I said yes right on the spot because I didn't want to chicken out. Um, so I said yes, and then I, my first year leading was crazy. Um, so we started with eight staff. 
21 students, 19, uh, 18 girls, three, three guys. It was fantastic. Um, and, uh, and so we start staff training, eight staff. By, we, by the time we got to the school, five staff. By the time we were into the first quarter, four staff. And I'm like, please don't leave me. And it was amazing. It was such a good school. It was so amazing. God showed up in amazing ways. And I realized this was not, nothing did I do to make this successful. It was totally him. Like it was, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what was going on. But God had a plan, and all you got to do is say yes to it. And, and really all of this, I want, I want to share this because all this is, this was all started because, really because just falling in love with the word of God. You see, when I was alone those times reading God's word and praying to him, not, see, the thing is, is not, I didn't just like fall in love with the words in the Bible. What happened is I fell in love with Jesus See, that, that's, that's the thing, is, is the Bible to me, when I was reading it, it's not like I'm like, oh, man, I love the Bible so much. From reading it, I was like, man, I love Jesus so much. Like, because I, for the first time, I met him. Like, it, that's the thing, is Jesus is living. He's real. And when we actually engage with his word, he's right there with us. And, like, I got to know Jesus, and I just fell in love with him. And see, it wasn't the Bible that was causing me to do all these things. It was Jesus. But I got to know him from his word. And, and see, the, the core of our faith as Christians is not the Bible. The core of our faith is Jesus. But the Bible talks all about him. The Bible tells us who he actually is. The Bible are his spoken words. Who doesn't want to listen to the words of Jesus? What did he say? My sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice, and they listen to them. They come when I call them. Did you know we have a book that actually has Jesus' very words in it? That at any point you can open up and say, hey, Jesus, what did you actually say? Jesus, I just want to listen to you. You want to listen to a, a sermon by Jesus? Read one of the Gospels. Read the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 5, fantastic sermon by Jesus. Who doesn't want to listen to the sermon by Jesus? I mean, how cool is that? That we get to actually listen to his very words. And not only that, we get to do them when he's sitting right next to us. He's sitting there right next to us as we pour over the page. Why? Because the same, the same spirit that inspired those words, that brought those words, is the same spirit that dwells within us. And so when we read the Bible, I know sometimes it can be like, it can be boring and dry and confusing, but that's how life is. Sometimes life is boring and it's dry and it's very confusing. But that's because of us. That's because we have things within our heart that need to be reworked. We have things within our mind that need to be renewed. And I promise you, I promise you, I, this is something that, there's not a lot of things that I would say like, I promise you and I'll put my life on it. But this is something where I promise you and I'll put my life on it. That if you engage with the word of God, with a genuine heart to seek after Jesus, he will meet you. He will renew your mind. He will transform your heart. And he will open your eyes to behold his glory as if a veil is being lifted. And you will walk into a greater freedom. 
It's not that I'm not saying that when we, if, if we're not reading the Bible, we don't have freedom. That's not what I'm saying. But we can walk into a greater freedom. And it's like this. The psalmist says that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet. Right Before my SBS, I felt like I was just in a dark room. And I'm like, I hope this is the right step. I hope this is the right step. I hope this is the right step, right? But I'm so uncertain. And I don't know if I'm going to step and I'm going to fall or what. After reading the Bible, it was like a lamp just lit up in front of me. And I'm like, oh, that's where I should step. Oh, that's where I should step. And the more that I read it, the more freedom I step into. And it's like the lighter it gets around me. And the more that I can see, the more I can see ahead of me, the more I can see around me, and the more sure I am of the footing that's in front of me. I just, I, it's just, it's changed my life. And I know it's, it's not just, it's not like a special gifting that you need to have your life changed by, transformed by the Bible. The word of God will transform you because it's his word. He spoke it. And in his word, there is power. There is power in his word. And Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he, the Lord, upholds the universe. He upholds all of existence by the power of his word. And you have the opportunity to actually engage with that very word, the same word that actually upholds the universe. So with that, I just want to pray for you guys that you would have a greater hunger, that God would give you a greater hunger. And I, and I ask that you, without ceasing, continually pray, God, give me a greater hunger. God, give me a greater hunger to know you more. Not just give me a greater hunger to read the Bible. God, give me a greater hunger to know you more, to know you more, to know you more. So let me pray for you guys. Father, I just thank you so much for all of these students here. I thank you so much for what you've already begun to do in their lives. I thank you so much for what, what you did in their lives to bring them here to this place. And Father, I just pray that the hunger that they already have, that you would just increase it a hundredfold. Father, I pray that you would just give them this driving hunger as they just, they need to know you. Because John 17 says this, this is eternal life, that they may know the Father and they may know the Son. Father, I pray that they would step in to that eternal life of knowing you and knowing your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, again, I just pray a blessing over them. I pray a blessing over this morning, Lord. And I just pray that through this week you would just grow that hunger, that they would come together as family to say, hey, let's read the word together. Let's get together and let's encourage each other towards your word to know you more. And, Father, again, I just, I just thank you for, for Zane and the leadership here. If it's just inviting me, Lord, and I just pray a blessing over them, that you would just give them wisdom and, and discernment as they continue to lead, Lord. And we just thank you for what you're going to do this quarter because, you know, we know that it's going to be amazing and all we need to do is say yes, Lord. And we just pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thank you guys so very much. Guys, I feel like we have to respond to this. We're going to have so much fun on these Bible mornings. I just know they're going to be like the golden nugget of our week every week. Can I, can I get everyone to stand? I just really feel like as a room, let's, let's really seal this. This is going to sound funny, but let's put our hands on our stomach. All right, let's take the next 30 seconds. And, and there are really, it occurs to me that we can have as much as we're hungry for. That, that, that God is free, but he's not cheap. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? <laughs> that he wants to give away, give himself away to us, but he needs us to want him. You know what I mean? So let's take the next 30 seconds and let's give our guts and let's really pray, God, would you 
put a hunger in me for the word of God. That there is an access I can have to you, God, and I want it. I want it. That literally you have recorded sermons for me to check in on, and they're just waiting for me. So let's just do that right now. Jesus, we just ask right now, God, would you put a hunger in us? Would you put a hunger in us, Jesus? God, that we would, that we would long after knowing you more, God. God, that I would, I would to learn more about who you are, God. Who you are. Jesus, we thank you that we have full access to you. God, that we literally can read the Bible with the author sitting next to us. That's amazing. Thank you, God. And I need more hunger in my life, Jesus. Would you say, would you deposit it in this room? We need more hunger. We thank you that you would take your time to give us your word and you would take your time to read it with us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, hey, can we give it up for Jesse one more time, you guys? That was incredible. Dang. All right, we have, do we have any announcements? Are we good? Um, We have 30 minutes, so we're back on at 940. You guys want to join us here at 940? Awesome. Love you guys. And and my good friend Philip from Germany has has a quick thing. To all my German friends, happy German National Day. Yeah. Day of German unity. 30 years ago, the Berlin Wall fell. Happy German National Day. Come on, that was the best. Thank you, Philip.
Making his hits, yeah. I put the tape on the disc, yeah. I ride this beat into orbit, yeah. I feel like all of these rappers, my kids, and I can't let my children be orphans, yeah. Listen, that was a bar I just spit. If you feeling offended, ignore it, yeah. Lower, look, I wear the socks with the chacos. Back cause I dress like apostles, yeah. They probably hated Picasso, yeah. Locks hanging like Samson. I got mm vibes like Hanson. Middle 10 and I'm militant. Man, I told my dog this ain't Kansas. I'm not your average little rapper that's capping on tracks. All of your tracks sound like cat in a hat. I probably rap about anime, maybe in Hathaway. Your granny say that it's slap. I got the tribe and my boys on my back. I got the cross of the Lord on my back. You said he's slacking, I'm foreign to that. Road is it four in the morning, in fact. Look, I don't got time to retweet, uh. My city love me like Chief Keith, wait. My city love me like Kiki, uh. Dodging coyotes like Meep Meep, uh. None of these rappers could see me, uh. 2024, I'm running, yeah. Might be my baby, my VP, uh. Rest in peace to Fife, dog. Any tribe going tribal. I'ma shine my light, dog. Even if they cut my lights off. Blow sick, need lights all. Going viral off my bars. Gotta watch out for the Hulk Hogan's 24-inch pythons. Dilly, I came from the sticks, yeah. All I've been making is hits, yeah. I put the tape on the disc, yeah. I ride this beat in the orbit, yeah. I feel like all of these rappers, my kids, and I can't let my children be orphans, yeah. Listen, that was a bar I just spit. If you feeling offended, ignore it. Lower. 
Revelation uh -huh. chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Yes, sir. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. Preach, preacher. For God shall wipe away. Yes, sir. Every tear from their eyes. Yes, sir. Get ready for the revolution. What you say? Let's just keep praying another minute. Jesus is just so good. We just love you, Jesus. And 
This is so authentic. It's so sincere. We just love your presence, and we, we love being with you. We're just stunned that we get to be in the tent today. I don't know how I get to be here, Lord. I, I just don't deserve it, God. I just never could have seen it coming, Lord. I could so easily be doing a million different things. And I just thank you that here we are with hearts that are in love with you, and here we are sitting in your presence, your tangible presence all around us. We love you, Jesus, and we just thank you that you are messing our hearts up, God. You're messing up our minds, and we just give you permission to come and mess us up a little bit more, God. We we just, we want our lives to be fully in line with you, God. We want to be just ablaze in love with you. We want to be wholehearted for you, maybe beyond what we even know is possible, God. We, we want more than maybe we've ever experienced in our lives. And God, we're not just looking for a goosebump. That's great. But we want faith in our hearts, God. We want, we want this to be real inside of us. We want to be gripped like we read about in the Bible, Lord, as the early church was so gripped with you and your reality. We want to be gripped in that same way, God, like the heroes of history, Lord, like Reinhardt Bunky was gripped for Africa, God. Like Lauren Cunningham was gripped for the nations of the earth, God. Like Charles Finney was gripped for America and the lost, God. We want to be gripped like these heroes in history. So God, we're just asking with a ton of joy and a ton of faith and a ton of expectation, would you just come and continue to grab a hold of our hearts, Lord. Thank you this tent is full of world changers, God. Thank you that this tent represents millions hearing the gospel in the decades ahead. Thank you this tent represents represents, literally represents hundreds of future Jesus-centered marriages, God. Thank you that this room represents like I don't even know how many thousands of kids that this room represents. That they will both biological, that will be adopted and brought into homes, God. I just that, that we would realize that this is not just a school, this is not just a lecture morning, this is not just training, God, this is literally nations being impacted by our simple obedience and our love. So God, let every person in here just feel so empowered, so championed, so loved, so valued by you today, Jesus, in your awesome, awesome name, amen. Amen. All right, before you sit down, you probably already did. Yes, here we go. Stand up. And uh, our first three training mornings, here's what I want you to do, is um, our first three training mornings, we're not doing one this morning because you did Bible morning, but we, uh, we talked about three cultures that we just think are innate in the next generation and are also just deeply biblical. Um, we talked about the culture of celebration. Uh, someone shout out some points on the culture of celebration. What does it mean? A couple people, just anything, just shout it out. What's that? Uh, choosing a cheerful heart. Yes, someone else. Say it again. What was it? Partnering with God's thoughts over people. Yes. What else? I heard someone else. Agreeing with value. Yes. I saw a hand. Where was it? Yes. Yeah. Don't dwell on the past. Don't dwell on the negative. Yeah. Hand back there. Yes. Yeah. Encouragement to feed on, planting trees of life in people's life. Yes, right here. Yes, come on. So fun. Your personality does not put you in a box, right? Um, love that. And let me say one note on that. Of course, 
Jesus manifests uniquely through the beauty of our personalities and the diversity, but sometimes we've just knit, we've boxed ourselves in too much. We just go, I'm not this or I'm not that. And Jesus goes, well, I am. So, so you are, right? So it's those boxes we want to break. Whereas you should feel total permission to walk in the beauty and diversity of your personality in the fullest expression of what Jesus made to be. So that's culture celebration. Then we hit culture of happy holiness. Couple people, raise your hand. Points on happy holiness. Yeah. Yeah, following God's laws, his commandments, his truth with a happy heart. Yes, yeah, someone else. Hand up and I'll find you. Yes. Holiness unto the Lord, not holiness unto holiness. Just for the sake of holiness. That's good. That's so good. It's not religious. It's relational. Yeah. Someone else had their hand up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Come on. That was one of my favorite moments. I was preaching to myself on that one. Run, delighting in the joy of running away from temptation, that it's a joy, it's an absolute joy. I'll give you a dumb little example on this. I travel a lot more than I'm comfortable sometimes, and, uh, and I, because of it, I'll stay in a bunch of hotels, and this is what I think of when I do, is that I, I'd never, ever turn on a TV in a hotel, and, but, but I, that's what goes through my mind, is I go, what a joy that I could tell my wife, and that the Lord sees me, that I'm not even turning this thing on because I'm not even opening the door for temptation. Like, I, and it's a joy, it's a delight. And I just look at it sometimes and go, I'm not turning you on. I am not turning you on. I am absolutely, I'm not even tempted to turn you on. I'm gonna go get a workout in right now. I'm not turning you on. Like, so that delight in running away from temptation flips the tables on you know, just enduring temptation and trying to move in more self-control. No, no, we delight in running from temptation. Someone else, yeah. Holiness is an invitation to more of God. Yes, someone over here. Anyone over here? Yeah. Yeah, when we know we're loved, then we take great delight in pleasing him. His love is unconditional. His pleasure is based on our decisions and our righteousness. So good. Okay, and then last one we talked about was the culture of present-centeredness yesterday morning. A couple of people, give me some points on that. What stuck out to you on the culture, living a present-centered life? Yes. Don't get distracted by the gecko. Yes. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so good. What else? Yes. Yeah, find time for the secret place to get to know God. Yes. Yep. Yes. Come on. We have we found him to be beautiful ourselves. So good. Yes, it's not my job to figure it all out. It's my job to find the shepherd. Come on, we're preaching now. I saw, yes. Yes, don't worry about how it's going. Just keep going. Don't over-evaluate. That's so good. Yes. Yeah, when you read the Bible, talk to the author about it. He's sitting right there. He loves to talk to us. Yes. Yes, so good. Absolutely. One more. Yeah, in the back. 
Yeah, God is better at speaking than I am at hearing. Therefore, my confidence is in his ability to speak more than my ability to hear. Though I will, I will work to hear, that's not where my confidence is. My confidence is he is so good at speaking. Okay, here we go. I want you to get into a group of three. Do your best. If you have a one group of four or something, that's okay. Do your best to get into a group of three. Raise your hand if you need a group, and then we can find... Raise your hand, okay? If you need someone, find a raised hand. If you're a group of two and you need someone, find a raised hand. If, there, if it's not, yep, or three raised hands, find each other, however you want to do it. If you need someone, pull in a raised hand. One more. We need one more right here. One more right here. Come to the front. We got it here? Okay. Anyone else? You guys need one more? Right here. Right there. Those guys. Okay. You guys need one more? Is there, is there someone still needs a group? You found someone? You found someone? Okay. You guys, there's one more needs one more person back there. Anyone still trying to find a group? Okay. Either split into, there you go. Okay. Here we go. So, volunteer number one, who are you? Raise your hand if you are the volunteer number one in your group. Every group needs a volunteer. Every group needs one volunteer. Been our last topic kind of for the morning. I'm going to hit something. I'm going to go after a little bit more storyline. Why don't you stand up just because you've been sitting for a while. Turn to the person next to you and tell them your favorite, absolute favorite moment in the last week that you've had since coming here or five days. Just tell them. What's your favorite moment for you personally? Okay, guys, grab your seats. Here we go. Woo! I feel like we cracked the door on something that's so much bigger, and now you're like, now we're all like, uh, okay, how do we get our heads back where we were, right? But we've got to talk about this stuff. We will. We absolutely will. But I have something on my heart for you today. I just want to share a bit. The next, uh, you know, we'll go, let's go. Let's go 45 minutes, and we'll, we'll try and end early for lunch today and, um, and get you guys out of here. I know it's been a long week, an awesome week, but a long week, and just so much going on. Everybody needs a good nap at some point uh, today or this weekend. Hopefully, you get a good nap. When are they finding out their outreach teams? Do we know? 
What's that? Hopefully tomorrow. Wow. Okay. I, I hope I didn't just give false hope to everybody, huh? There's, it's a hope? Okay, it's not false hope. It's just still in the land of hope. Okay, okay, we'll keep hoping, guys. <laughs> See, hopefully it's not hope disappointed tomorrow. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the hour that we live in and the significance of it and just some of the big picture stuff that's going on around us. That, and my goal in this is that we would find ourselves in the storyline, that we would find ourselves in our own journeys kind of intersecting. And yesterday I talked a little bit about the fire and fragrance story. Today I just want to take it a little bit further and, um, and just share a little bit more of the story with you guys of what's happening in the currently around us, the day we're in. And my goal again is that we would just get caught up in this grand narrative and then we would find in it our place on the wall. We would find in it the significance of our voice and our calling. And so um, what I want to share with you a little bit um, is, and my, the staff here, they are so, they've heard me say this a million times, um, but it's true, is that we really do live in the most exciting hour of all of human history. There's just never been a day like we're living in right now. And that's not just prophecy. That's not just like wishful thinking. That's, that's fact. It's data. It's like we have never seen a day or an hour like we're in right now um, for the purpose of the Great Commission. And uh, I just want to land a little bit of faith in our hearts today for that hour we live in. I want to tell you a few things that kind of speak about that hour um, and, uh, and, and kind of to set some perspective. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that some of the places of the world that are least touched by the gospel have now become some of the places that are some of the fastest growing places in all of Christianity. I don't know if you guys saw last week, even on, it was, I think it was on Fox News or some news outlet even had this whole article that today the fastest growing population of Christianity in the world is in Iran. And um, this is mind-blowing. This is absolutely incredible, and today, you know, there are more Christians in, in China than any nation in the whole world right now, and that, the, you, you could have said that, you know, a generation ago, that there are 120 million Christians in a closed communist nation, and that is astounding, but again, it speaks about the hour that we're in right now and how significant it really is. I was, uh, um, I, I was thinking in a number of categories is that um, in, in the category of languages and, and, and nations and peoples having the languages of scripture, we are literally kind of in the final hour of every language on earth. Um, having the beginnings of the scripture for the first time in human history. So much so that all the Bible translation agencies are saying today that by 2025, six years from now, they will begin the translation of the last language on earth to have the Bible so that for the first time in all of human history, every single language on earth would have the scriptures in their native tongue for the first time in human history. And again... Um, that is, you know, the hour that we're in right now. And uh, in another category, you know, you've heard of unreached people groups, and there are roughly about 7,000 unreached people groups across the world. That means they're, they're, around, they're less than 2% reached, and they lack the sufficient resources to reach their own people. But then there's another category of people called unengaged people groups. And that unengaged people groups number was right around 2,000, um, even like 15 years ago. And so that's 2,000. Think about this for a moment. That's 2,000 people groups that not a single known missionary is reaching out to, and they don't know a single Christian in their people group. We don't know of one. We don't know of a church, a Christian, or a missionary, so they call them unengaged. Literally, no one's even thinking about 
help them. No one's praying for them, and no one's trying to reach them. So 15 years ago, a group of churches and missions orgs got together and said, we are going to work to bring this list down to zero. And this is the unengaged group. So every year they would meet, and it's so incredible. And they would read these people groups. They'd have it all listed out. And like a church over here, like Antioch Church in Waco, Texas, they go, hey, we're going to take these 10 people groups. And next time we come back, we'll tell you whether we've engaged them or not. And next year, two years later, they come back and they go, hey, take those 10 people groups off. They're all engaged now. There are believers. There are missionaries. We planted five churches, you know, and they would watch this list go down. Well, in December of this last year, 2018, are we in 2019? Yes. In December, that group gathered again 15 years in, and for the first time in history, that group of unengaged people groups is like around 20 or 30 from 2000 about 15 years ago. And the last remaining unengaged people groups actually in the world that have no known missionaries, the majority of them are deaf peoples in different nations of the earth where their sign language is a different sign language. So in other words, they, they need to be reached in their language. And so one church, and you got to love this, Saddleback Church, Rick Warren, um, said, hey, we'll become the world's leading experts on reaching the deaf. So we are adopting all the remaining deaf communities in the world. And for the first time in history, for the first time in all of human history, every single one of those people groups is being engaged for the first time in history. So we're literally like crossing biblical finish lines right now. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with um, IHOP Kansas City and Mike Bickle and all that's been going on there? They're dear friends of ours. Um, Alan, I think I told you guys, Alan Hood and Corey Russell will be with us this quarter, which will be so much fun. And uh, we love these guys. And Mike, we were with Mike last year, and uh, he was teaching and sharing about the growth of prayer across the world. And, and really, the, the praying church is the, is the spirit-empowered church. It's the church that's seeing answered prayer. And God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Right? He didn't say my house to be a house of meetings. He didn't say my house to be a house of people sitting in chairs. He said my house will be a house of prayer. Like my people will be a praying people is what he said. So prayerlessness in some ways is one of the well, one of the worst report, you know, blemishes on the report card of Christianity is that we would have a prayerless expression of Christianity. And that's changing all over the earth. And this is what's crazy. Is they just celebrated their 20th anniversary last weekend. So for 20 years, some of you may have never even heard of this, for 20 years, they have never stopped worship and prayer in Kansas City. It's never ended for 20 years. Not a, not a minute, not an hour, not a half an hour, not when the electricity went out, not on Christmas morning. It has not stopped for 20 years. And they estimated on their 20th anniversary, no, it's real, on their 20th anniversary, they, they totaled it up on the last 20 years and they realized that they had logged 20 million hours of intercession in IHOP KC in the last 20 years. 20 million hours of prayer, praying for the nations of the earth, praying for the unreached, praying for the unengaged, you know, praying for all these things that we're believing for in the missions movement. And, that, and Mike shared that when they started IHOP 20 years ago, they did the research, and there were about 25 places in the whole world that were talking about day and night worship and prayer. And he said, now 20 years later, they did the research again, checking on, you know, globally, they have a team that did this, and they found that in 20 years, it grew from 25 places in the whole world to 25,000 places in the world that are contending and prioritizing worship and prayer as a lifestyle. 25,000 places in the world in 20 years. 
And you've got to know, and you may not be aware of this, that you are the first generation in all of human history to wake up in the morning and every single nation on earth has a worshiping radical remnant of believers. You're the first generation in all of history. It's, and I love, you know, working with Lauren Cunningham, and you've met him, you've seen him, and you'll hear from him um, throughout this time, is Lauren's been to every country in the world, personally. And uh, you, you'll hear these missions conferences at times, um, people will use um, stats around the unreached to just motivate us to want to go to those places, and that's awesome. But they'll say things like um, Libya, they'll be like, there are no known believers in Libya. And if you're with Lauren, he'll like nudge you and he'll be like, I snuck into Libya in the trunk of a car and led 20 to Jesus myself. And they're doing just fine. And then they'll be like, there are no known believers in the Maldives, you know. And he'll be like, I was in the Maldives and there's a lot of house churches there just doing great. And, and you realize that you know, Lauren has literally been to every nation in the world. You are the first generation in human history that when you get your head off the pillow in the morning, every geopolitical nation on the earth has believers that are worshiping Jesus. For the first time in human history. Literally, people have laid their lives down for the hour that we live in. There is no such thing as boring Christianity. This is the, literally the most exciting hour in history to get out of bed in the morning and realize we are living in literal biblical lines, finish lines are being crossed in our day that for 2,000 years people have been laying their lives down for the day that we live in right now. It is unprecedented. I had it happen to me for the first time. A couple years back, there's a little nation in the Himalayas I go to every year called Bhutan. Super closed nation, uh, very un, kind of forgotten by most of the world. And, and God gave us an assignment to pour into the underground church there, and we have for many years. And I had a friend on the East Coast, he texts me, and he goes, bro, he goes, I'm sitting in a missions conference right now. And uh, a guy just said there are no known believers in Bhutan. And I, and I texted him back and said, actually, I was just there a few months ago. Tell him that there are easily 20,000 followers of Jesus in Bhutan. And you hear the stories. And when I first went there, they said that there were about 6,000 believers in the whole country. Actually, now they're estimating it's closer to 30,000 followers of Jesus. And when I meet with these pastors and leaders and say, hey, talk to us about what's happening in your nation. They go, well, it's never a matter of whether we can plant a church. He goes, it's just a question of whether we can get to the village. He goes, some of these places are so remote, they're so hard to get into. But if we can get there, he goes, we invite people to gather. We pray for the sick. They get healed. And we plant a church. And I'm like, that's a really good strategy. We should try that in America more often. And, and, and they go, the, the, the number one, you ask everyone, how did you come to the Lord? And they're like, well, I, I saw my little brother raised from the dead when a Christian came to my village and prayed for him. You're like, everybody, the 80, they estimate 80 to 90 percent of Bhutanese believers came to Jesus because of a miracle or the supernatural intervention of the power of God. And, and this is a place that someone on the East Coast in a missions conference saying there are no known believers in Bhutan. And there are almost 30,000 on fire believers in Bhutan that could absolutely inspire us about what's possible in our nations because of what they're seeing in their nation. That's the day we live in. This is the hour that we're in right now. There's never been a day like right now. And I want to jump from that into this, so we have this incredible opportunity we're in right now, to another part of our storyline. I ended kind of with the Fire and Fragrance story. You know, we came back, we launched the Fire and Fragrance DTS, um, just as a part of this broader, beautiful YWAM family that we're all a part of. 
And a, a couple years into that, Amy, who you now have heard about, had one of her most profound encounters she has ever had. And I don't share this with people that aren't like family because some people will get confused or distracted by it. But the encounter Amy had was a full-blown angelic visitation in the physical. And that should not be too, ab- like no one should even bat an eye at that because it's so darn biblical <laughs> and it happens so many times in the Bible, of course God would want to do that. Now you hear that and you go, wow, that's super cool. Well, in Amy's experience, and I have not experienced what she has, but of course we've had to walk it out together, it's not that cool. It just means you couldn't barely hear the Lord, so he sent an angel to make sure you heard the Lord. And, and usually whatever an angel says in that setting, you're like, there's no, we have to, there's no option now. This isn't like, do you want to do this? This is like fear of God, like you've got to do this. And don't get caught up in the angel deal. The message from the Lord that God brought to her, and this was a couple years into starting Fire and Fragrance, was this. The messenger shares this message. This is the word of the Lord. Um, And Amy, seeing this in the physical, hearing it, is the Lord says, I am raising up fiery-eyed evangelists, a fiery-eyed generation. They will have fire in their eyes. And he said, they will crisscross the nations of the earth. They will crisscross America, bringing a message of revolution. And that revolution will actually lead to reformation. And then the last sentence was, and they will be just like the circuit riders of old in history. And Amy has this crazy encounter. She writes it down. This is so our, like, friendship. And she's like, Andy, I had an angelic visitation. I'm like, whatever. I don't even know what that means. And, uh, and she's like, and this is what the angel said. And I'm like, I double don't know what any of that means. And, and that last line caught my attention was that they will be like the circuit riders of old. And so diving into it, going, okay, well, God is really getting our attention of, like, about this. Fiery-eyed young believers who will crisscross the nation and the nations of the earth with a message of revolution that will lead to reformation. And we just dove into it, praying it, going, God, what do you mean? What are we supposed to do? And for me, I just dove into studying the history of the circuit riders, which was a move of God in the Methodist revival through John Wesley in like the late 1700s, early 1800s. I won't go into the history, but I just read every single book I could find on this era of history to say, why would God say circuit riders? What did he mean? What was he saying? What was the point? And then the more I dove into history, the more undone I was at this group of people I'd almost never read about or even heard about before and how abandoned they were to the simple gospel, to simple obedience, and to believing that there was no place too far, no heart too hard. They were known and famous for riding 100 miles on horseback for one home in the frontiers of America because that home was worth hearing the gospel and the good news of Jesus. They were gritty. They were determined. No one ever knew their names. They were never famous. Many of them died of like crazy illnesses on the trail. In fact, their leader in America, Francis Asbury, goes down in history as the man to have written ridden more more miles on a horse than any man in all of human history, riding 250,000 miles on the back of a horse across this nation for one purpose, that the gospel would be laid into the foundation of the nation. And I read about these guys and went, my gosh, God, do it, God, do it in a generation. Do it in a generation of 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, God, that we would have fire in our eyes, not concerned with our reputation, not concerned with our Instagram accounts, 
not concerned with how famous we are, not concerned with having to be known by man. Raise up a generation that wants to be known by God, a generation that would be famous in heaven, and a generation that would have fire in their eyes and stop at nothing for the sake and the cause of the gospel spreading across the earth. That generation could see the unreached of the earth touched with the gospel in one generation. And the more we dove in, the more undone we were with what God was saying. Long story short, we team up with Brian and Christy Brandt. Brian will be with us in two weeks, uh, one of our dear friends, and, and we had the privilege of doing this together with circuit riders. And the Lord spoke to us and said, I want you to launch a school. And it's so much more than you realize. And we're like, all right, what is it? And he says, five weeks long. And, and so we ne we'd never run a five-week school. It wasn't like a DTS. It was something different. We didn't even know what it was. And we're like, what do we call it? And you know, we thought, oh, it's just called School of Circuit Riders. You know, Nobody will know what it is. And, and we found the worst logo you could ever find in your entire life. It was like this depressed horse and this depressed writer, and we're like, that is absolutely pathetic. It was literally like clip art. That's all we could find. We didn't have any media team at that point. And so we throw this thing up, and we're like, no one's going to come anyway. Um, and we don't even know what we're doing. And little to, did we know that 300 people would sign up for that school, none of them knowing what they were coming to, literally calling us and being like, so what is this? And we're like, we don't really know. And we're, we're like, why are you coming? And they're like, we don't really know. <laughs> And we literally had someone call and say, hey, are we going to learn to ride horses? Because they saw the logo. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, we don't have any horses. So I don't think so. But, but honestly, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> and, and we just did it. It was, just in a, it was this step of obedience that God said. Well, long story short, the 300 show up. We have a historic summer, 2011. And out of that, 150 of them launched to Orange County, California, do a crazy outreach with one question, is America ripe for the harvest? Because everyone else is saying America's turning its back on God. Europe's turning its back on God. The Western world is turning its back on God. But I don't know. We just The more we dove into God's heart we're sort of like I don't know if that's what God is saying maybe that's just what society is saying and, and that God wasn't looking at any place in America or Europe or the Western world where maybe some of the places in Asia and Africa and South America were still experiencing spiritual awakening, that God wasn't looking at America and Europe and going like, sorry, they missed their chance, you know, like, I'm done, moving on. Like that, that God was looking going, not too hard, not too dark, I just need a few laborers that actually believe me. And so we sent them there to ask the question, what if the Western world is actually ripe for another harvest? What if there's a generation that's actually longing to turn their hearts to Jesus? What if there's a generation that might be resistant to religion, but is longing for a Messiah? And so we don't give them religion, maybe they'll actually begin to follow Jesus, right? So that was our question. We sent them, a long-term team was planted out of it. And God gave us signs of the ripeness of the harvest. On that first outreach, a guy got on a bus, and uh, he thought to himself, he's wild, now lives in Nepal long term. And he goes, you know what, everyone's stuck on the bus. He goes, why don't I just see if I can share something with them? So he goes to the front of the bus driver, they're driving on the bus, and he goes, hey, can I share something with the bus? And I think the bus driver is so caught off guard, he was like, I guess so. So he, the bus is driving, he stands in the front, and he shares his testimony with everybody on the bus while they're driving. He goes, they can't get off, they're trapped. So... <laughs> He shares his testimony, and he literally gives an altar call on the bus. He goes, if any of you, he, he had a history of, like, drugs and crazy stuff. He shares his testimony. Jesus set him free. He goes, if any of you want this freedom I've just talked about, then raise your hand. Like, full-blown altar call on the bus. And the whole back row is all these skater kids. They all raise their hand. All of them. And he, he goes to the back of the bus, prays with them. They all give their lives to Jesus on the spot. How many you know that was a powerful bus ride? You got on lost. You got off saved. Like that was a really good bus ride. And we thought to ourselves, my gosh, this doesn't seem like resistance. 
Uh, same trip, another guy goes down to the Huntington Beach Pier. Everyone's fishing down there. He's a young guy, 18, and he walks down there and he taps the guy. You know, he's just walking around trying to be bold, just like any of us, a little awkward. You know, how do you even start a conversation? So he walks up to a random guy and goes, hey, um, is there anything I could pray for you for? And it's an older man, and the guy just starts making fun of him. And he's like, whatever, dude. And he goes, why don't you just pray I catch a fish? He's like, I'm the only guy down here who hasn't caught a fish today. And the young guy's like, all right. And he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he goes, in Jesus' name, I pray this man would catch a fish. The moment he says fish, the guy's rod goes, vroom, vroom, vroom. No, no lie. He, he reels up the fish, biggest fish anyone's caught of the day. And the, the older man looks at this young guy and goes, unbelievable. And five minutes later, f- completely surrenders his life to Jesus with this 18-year-old. Completely. It was a- another one of these trips in this circuit rider season as we began to do these in different places across America. We were in L.A. Um, on Santa Monica Boulevard with a whole group of people just to go out and love people. And this is a crazy part of the city. And we actually had high schoolers with us. It was a summer deal. And so we sent out everyone in groups of two or three, just go love the lost, share the simple gospel, pray for the sick. So guy walks out, 16 years old, high school, just full of like, I'm going to do this. You know when you like kind of get yourself revved up and you're like, I'm going to do it. I've never done it before, but I'm going to do it. So he goes out like that. First guy walks up to, he's like, I just got to break fear, right? So he walks up to a guy getting out of his car, walks straight up to him, goes, hey, dude, do you know Jesus? Like just that enthusiastic, right? And the guy starts F-bombing. Jesus, just like beep, 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 and the poor 16-year-old is just like, oh my Lord, and he's so intimidated, he's so scared, but then all of a sudden he feels this little whisper, this little voice in his head that says, ask him about his back, and so while the guy's dropping F-bombs on Jesus, he looks at him and goes, hey, this is weird, but do you have back pain? And the guy drops more F-bombs. He's like, how do you know that? Like he goes, he can't believe it, but he's just like completely swearing up a storm. And the kid looks at him and goes, hey, I know you said all that about Jesus, but if he heals his back, your back, will you believe he's real? And the guy's like, I don't know. <laughs> and so he goes, uh, he starts praying for him. 16-year-old starts praying for him. The guy starts swearing again. And he goes, what is this? What is this? What is, he goes, my back is on fire. What is this? What is happening to me? Five minutes later, through conversation, completely surrenders his life to Jesus. Five minutes later. And how how many of you know if you're, like, swearing about the name of Jesus that you don't fake a miracle? (laughs) Like, like literally, Jesus touches his back. He's healed. We continue on this journey over a number of years of just watching as God speaks to us about the ripeness of the harvest in the nations of the earth. We knew it was ripe in Asia. We knew it was ripe in parts of Africa. But God was saying there is no place outside of the touch of my kingdom. There is no nation that I'm not moving in right now. And we decided in that trip, second summer I think it was, we were running these circuit rider schools. The Lord spoke to us about going to London. And I remember when we started to tell people we're going to London, they said to us, this is what they said to us, they go, hey, we know you're seeing like some cool stuff in America. Don't expect to see that in England. It's a different country. And I was like, that is so weird. As if like we, Jesus would be like, hey, don't have the same expectation that I can heal sickness in England. I, I just can't move in that nation like I move in this nation. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. So we went to England full of faith that God was going to move. And I remember the first night I was sharing, talking about faith and faith for the nation, faith for what God wanted to do. Do we have people from the UK in here? Where's anybody from the UK? Is there a couple of us? Okay. And, uh, and we're talking about it, and uh, the room is a little bit stoic, I got to say. And, uh, you know, not necessarily like this room. 
And, and I'm sort of like, we need a breakthrough. And, and in the middle of it, I, uh, I start teaching about the, the king in the scripture that Elisha or Elijah, I can't remember which, goes to and says, hey, I want to give you, the Lord wants to give you victory over your enemies. And he says, strike the ground with the arrows. And he strikes the ground three times, right? And then the prophet rebukes him and says, you should have struck the ground at least five times. He goes, but because of your apathy, in essence, you're only going to have momentary victory over your enemy. And I just invited the room. I go, guys, to the degree that we are believing for the transformation of the nation, we need to strike the ground tonight, right? And so we had this moment, and in the midst of that, the room begins to shout. Like, they're, they're striking the ground, and it's this, like, faith for the UK that God can move and that no nation is outside of his reach, right? So the room starts shouting. Like, I mean shouting. There's no band. There's no ambiance. There's no chord in the background. It's, like, awkward. They're just shouting. There's, like, 250 in the room, and they're roaring. And I'm roaring, and then they just keep roaring. And they keep roaring. And I'm like, this is wild. And I just get off the stage and I'm roaring over there. There's no one on the stage. There's no band. There's no nothing. And they just keep roaring and roaring. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a shout, but usually there's like a life of a shout. It's like you can almost graph it. It's like the initial, like everybody shouts and then it starts to wane. And then someone who's like super zealous in the front row gets like a fresh burst of energy, right? And they pull everybody up for one like second shout. And then it finally tapers off and you've had just an epic, you know, a declaration of faith for 30 seconds. Well, this thing won't stop. Well, after I don't know how long, it finally subsides. Nobody's even on a stage. It's just the room is responding for faith for the nations. The sound man comes up to me and goes, bro, he goes, I was recording the whole session. He goes, I just looked, and that shout was 11 minutes without ending. Someone else walks up to me, a British guy. He goes, bro, I got to be honest with you. He goes, when we started shouting, I said to myself, this is so American. And he goes, I was sitting there. He goes, I was sitting there just so frustrated. He goes, and then the stinking shout wouldn't end. He goes, three, four minutes in, I said to myself, I am sick of my apathy. And he goes, and I unleashed my voice and I started to shout. And he goes, I think God made the shout last until every Brit in the room overcame their fear of reaching the nation. So he gets up and shares it. The Brits go wild, and over those next two weeks of training and outreach, there were over 200 salvations on the streets of England where we were doing outreach. Muslims were coming to Jesus, and one of my favorite stories was from that outreach, again, to speak about the ripeness of the harvest and the day we live in. One of our guys, now he's long-term, he lives in India, was on the streets, and he walks up to a lady, again, just like you and I, a little bit awkward, a little bit hesitant, don't really know what to say. So he just walks up to a lady on a bench, and he goes, hey, do you know Jesus? Like, really that simple. And she goes, no, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in Jesus. And this guy's pretty bold. And he goes, well, do you have any pain in your body? Because I'd love to pray for you, and, and, and Jesus could show you he's real by healing your sickness. And she looks at him real smug, and she's like, nope, I am totally healthy, like stoked that there was no way that he could pray for her, right? And he's like, hmm. He's sitting there not long, and God drops an idea in his head. He says to her, he says, how about this? He goes, I know you don't believe in God. He goes, but would you come with me? I'm gonna walk, we're going to walk down the street together. We're going to stop random strangers, and every one of them that has any kind of immediate pain, we're going to pray for together. If they're not healed, then my God's not real. And she looks at him, and she's like as bold as he is in the opposite direction. So she's like, I'm in. And so 
this guy and this atheist lady start walking down the road, and he, you know God sets these things up. He starts stopping people, real nice, real kind about, just like, stop, hey, you know, my name's so-and-so. Like, can we, we're, we're, we're praying for people today. She's an atheist. And, and uh, do you have any pain in your body? Because uh, we'd love to pray for you. Well, the first five people they stop all have something immediate, like that they could actually tell if they got healed, right? And they pray for him, and he has her pray for them, the atheist. And all five of them are immediately healed. Every one of them. All of them. And she can't believe it. She can't believe it. I don't even have theology for this. And after the fifth one, she literally looks at him and goes, oh my gosh, your God is absolutely real. And she gives her life to Jesus on the spot. On the spot. There, there is no place too hard. There is no place too dark for what God is doing right now. Fast forwarding on this journey, continuing the story, and some of you might even intersect with us on the story at some of these different points. But on that journey, we developed an amazing relationship with a man named Lou Engel and a close friendship with the call. He had filled stadiums across America from 2000 to, you know, even in the last couple of years, uh, calling people into prayer and fasting and, and revival and, a, a, you know, a faith in God and saw remarkable, remarkable fruit. He changed my life before I'd ever met him. His gatherings had marked me and his message had marked me. And in that process, we built a friendship with him. And it actually was seven, eight years ago that we went to his living room with a prophecy. And we didn't know him that well at that time, but we flew to Kansas city and the prophecy was this that the call had gone out and a generation was responding but now it was time to send and that the call was going to have a significant transition to a sending movement and that in this sending movement the man, the passion the mantle and the what billy graham represented would fall on a whole generation not just a few people not just a few with microphones or on stages but a whole generation would carry what billy graham carried and signs and wonders would fill stadiums and miracles and gospel proclamation and out of it would result in a massive sending movement to the nations of the earth. And I'll never forget, if you guys know Lou a little bit, he's a wild man. And we shared that with him, and he was like, I don't know. I'm not an evangelist. And he was just like, he was like I, don't, I don't get it. Yes, but I don't understand, you know. And, and long story short, in, during that meeting, God is so committed to his purposes. A friend of Lou's calls mid-meeting. After we've shared all this and calls six times because Lou won't answer his phone because we're talking. And finally, his assistant answers the phone, comes back in, interrupts, goes, guys, you got to hear this. Puts the phone on speakerphone and the guy goes, Lou, I don't know what you're doing right now. And he knew Lou. He goes, but I woke up this morning and God, I had an encounter and God spoke to me. He goes, I I'm just going to share this with you. He goes, there's a transition coming to the call. It's actually going to be a sending movement. And now God's going to fill stadiums, but not just with prayer and fasting, but with signs, wonders, and miracles and the gospel. And he goes, this is the last part, is that the mantle of Billy Graham is going to fall on a whole generation. And Lou literally stands up in his living room, slaps his leg, and goes, the call must become the send. And seven years ago, this birthed in our hearts. Fast forward, this whole circuit rider word, our fire and fragrance community, our YWAM community resurging around the message of missions, so much fresh life being released in so many places, and the simple gospel being put back on the mouths of believers that are in love with Jesus. Fast forward all the way to this last uh, February in Orlando, where we finally felt like God was saying, now was the time. Seven years we went, God, is it time to launch the send? Is it time to launch the send? We've, we plan a meeting actually in February of 2018. I don't want to give too many details so you get lost in them. 
But we called together seven leaders, Todd White, Daniel Calendo with CFAN, a man named Michael Koulianos with a ministry called Jesus Image, Lou, myself, Brian Brent with Circuit Riders, and we meet together, in, in, uh, we plan a meeting in Orlando to ask the question, is now the time to launch this, and are we to do it together? And two days before we meet, we could have never planned this, we planned it months ahead of time, Billy Graham passes away. And two days before we meet, Lou comes in on fire and goes, guys, now is the time. Billy Graham has passed away. We've got to step into the vacuum. A whole generation is going to carry what that man carried. We meet, we take communion together, and we make a covenant as leaders to say we are going to sacrifice and we are going to lay our lives down for a fresh missions movement to the nations of the earth, for a fresh harvest across America. God has spoken to us to pray for 80 million salvations in America, and and we have prayed it ever since. God spoke to us about 200,000 new missionaries being launched out of this nation, of the nations of the earth. I'm believing for even more out of Brazil and other nations. And uh, he put this in our hearts. So in February 2018, we go, now is the time. We plan it in February 2019, a year later. And everyone said to us, uh, not everyone, lots of people were full of faith. But many said to us a couple things. They go, one, you will never fill a stadium in America simply on the message of the Great Commission. They go, it's just not going to happen. People aren't going to gather. You're not going to fill a whole stadium. And in fact, when we rented the stadium and told them we were believing for 60,000 people to come, which uh, would be the stadium capacity, they all told us, they go, you know what? Christian events never fill stadiums. You know, maybe you should think more like five or 10,000. That's what they told us. And people just said, you're not going to be able to fill it with the Great Commission. Young people are not going to rally to the Great Commission. Number two, they said, you'll never be able to do this as seven ministries leading together. They go, there's no way. You got to, who's the leader? Like, who's going to make this happen? Everybody else could serve it. But you can't do collaboration like that. You can't do unity like that. You've got too many competing agendas, and you're all peers. Like, except for Lou, who's like a father in the community. The rest of us are all like similar age, you know, each leading different movements or ministries. And they go, you're just not going to be able to pull it off. And, and, then, and then another thing they told me, number three, was it was going to cost $2 million to pull this off, and I've never raised anything close to that. They go, you're, you don't even expect to raise all the money beforehand. And I was like, what do you... What are you talking about? Like, you don't pay for these things? They go, well, you just take a giant offering in the gathering, and maybe it'll come in. And it's not uncommon to end these things, like, in debt. And I'm like, we're not ending this thing in debt. If God said the sin, he's going to pay for the sin. And they're like, hey, that's cute, but that just doesn't happen. And I'm like, all right, well, let's just keep going, right? So we start plowing. Well, number one, God bonds the heart of these seven leaders together into what I believe is a picture of a new day where everybody wants the kingdom and no one cares about the credit, where we lay down our egos, we lay down our logos and all we care about is that a generation be empowered into the great commission be empowered to walk out the simple gospel and God moved our hearts together so that by the time Orlando came this last February and that stadium we were closer friends than we'd ever been walking in radical you know submitted love for each other you know contending for each other and each other's families number two is that again people said oh I had a guy come to me he goes I've led 50 of these events and only one was paid for before I did it and he goes because some rich guy paid for the entire thing up front. And I go, God is going to pay for this thing. The night before Orlando, the send, the night before, I get a final phone call. Um, literally about to go to bed, and someone says, hey, the last bit was paid for, and we are completely in the black. And the $2 million... God doing something that no one else thought was possible. And the morning of the send, I, I will never forget because we got a phone call at like 5.30 in the morning. 
and it was from the stadium. They go, hey, we're worried. There's already thousands of people lining up on the streets. And we're like, it's 5.30. They go, we don't know if we have enough security. I get there like two hours early, like 8 a.m. It's going to start at 10. And the line of people and the line of cars was as far as I could see. And I went up into the stadium, and I remember looking down. I went up to the edge. I was looking down, and people are worshiping. And everywhere I could see is people. And like one out of every five had a Brazilian jersey or was holding a Brazilian flag up. And I'm like, wow, the Brazilians came to Orlando in force. And they were singing in Portuguese, and then others were singing in English. Well, that day exploded, and 60,000 people came to that stadium in Orlando this February, and something launched that I believe can't be stopped. And it's not about an organization. It's not about a brand name. It's not about some leaders. It's about the body of Christ is rising up like never before, that we are heading into the most activated hour in all of human history. And it was right on the road to that that people asked the question. They go, well, what's next? And I was so overwhelmed and on the verge of death the entire time leading up to it, dying from the job that I was like, I don't know what's next. We're just trying to survive to get to Orlando. And and our last fall school, all of them went to Orlando. Our school leaders are heroes and these staff are heroes because every one of them, we all landed in Orlando and they were like an army that helped even make this possible. And they would ask me, a lot of people were asking me, what's next? I go, I have no idea. We're just trying to be obedient. And God said, Orlando. And in that journey, I had no breadcrumb trails as to what was next. And they were like, well, it looks like it's going to, it looks like people are going to come. It looks like this is going to work. So you kind of know what's next. And I'm like, I don't know what's next. And out of the blue, we get this email from, um, from Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. And it's from the stadium owner, like the manager. And they're like, hey, we saw this event coming up called Descend, and we're wondering if you can bring it to um, Kansas City. And I'm like, that is so odd. Like, why, why would you, you know, even, I don't even know if they're a Christian. Like, why would they want us to come? And plus, Christian event, events don't usually fill stadiums or make money. So why are they asking us? And I didn't think much about it. We were so overwhelmed. Uh, about a week before Orlando, Lou and the whole team are together. And they're asking, they go, guys, what's after Orlando? And I'm like, hey, we got this random email from Kansas City. And Lou goes nuts. He goes, are you kidding me? He goes, this is God. 35 years ago, there were prophecies about Arrowhead Stadium. There would be a tipping point to a billion soul harvest that would touch the nations of the earth. And then he goes, he goes, do you know the prophecies? And I'm like, no, I don't know any of the prophecies. He goes, this is God. You have to pay attention. So we go through Orlando. On Orlando Day, I tell you, God blew our minds with what he did. The testimonies. On that day, 5,400 people text in a response saying that they were responding with a willingness to go anywhere in the world for the sake of the gospel. If even half of them go, it will be the largest day of missions mobilization in human history. Uh, hundreds responded to the message of adoption, and dozens have sent us pictures of the children they've already brought into their homes since Orlando. <laughs> dozens have engaged in foster care. Mind-blowing testimonies of miraculous healing. The night, when that night ended in Orlando, I looked out on the field. I was so tired. We all, we were just hugging and high-fiving. We couldn't believe it was over. The field had emptied, and I looked out, and the last thing I saw on the field was a security guy wheeling an empty wheelchair off the field because the person that rode in on it didn't need it anymore. <laughs> and it, crazy stories. One remark, there's so many I could spend the whole time talking about. Another one of a young person that had de dealt with self-hatred. Actually, probably got about 10 of these, honestly. 
for many years and had scars from cutting themselves for years. And there was a moment in the sand where Todd prayed for people to be healed of the effects of their past. And it was STDs, whatever it may have been. And we probably had, I'm saying like seven to ten testimonies of people who every scar on their body was removed and completely healed by the power of Jesus. Because that's who our Jesus is. There were two testimonies. These were so random, two testimonies of people who were in the middle of worship, hear the Lord whisper to them this word that they didn't know what it meant. And the word was Nepal. They had no idea it was even a location. And they're like, wonder what Nepal means, you know, what it is. And it would be like an hour later, maybe me or someone else would say something about the nation of Nepal. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's a country. Well, two of those people that sent in those testimonies, two of them, apart from each other, are already in Nepal because of what God said to them that day. We had one, uh, uh, almost done here. Two, three days after the Orlando, we get another email testimony. This was probably my favorite. And uh, uh, someone is flying to Dallas from Orlando who's at the Sen. And they write this testimony. They go, hey, this is crazy. I was sitting on a plane, and I was flying mid-flight. It's silent. And someone in the front of the plane stands up and gets the attention of the whole plane and starts to share their testimony from the front of the plane. Everybody's listening. Because you've been on planes. It's awkward, silent. And the testimony is, I used to be trapped in a homosexual life, and years ago, Jesus set me free, and I am married, and I have children, and they were real kind, real humble, and they just said, I just want everyone on this plane to know that Jesus can set you free from anything. And then they sit down, that's it, like they sit down, and the person who's writing the testimony was at the sand is like, that's crazy, I have never seen that in my life. Well, inspired by the person in the front of the plane, someone in the back of the plane stands up. And the back of the plane, lady stands up, and she goes, hey, I want everyone on this plane to know. People turn around, they're looking, she's talking. And then she goes, I was homeless for years. Drug addiction and alcoholism led me to homelessness. And a number of years ago, I met Jesus. He set me free from alcoholism. He set me free from drugs. And she goes, I have held a steady job for years now. And I just want to say, Jesus can set you free from anything. And the person that's writing the testimony is like, what is happening on my plane right now? Third person stands up. They can't believe it. All in different parts of the plane. Third person stands up, and he's in the military. And he goes, years ago, he goes, I'm in the military. Everyone's listening now. The whole te- they have the attention. And he goes, years ago, I was on, I was on a tour. I was on bat- in battle. And he goes, I got shot in the neck. And I was laying on the ground in a pool of my own blood, dying. And all I could do was shout the name of Jesus, was say the name of Jesus. And he goes, Jesus not only saved my soul, but he saved my life. And he goes, now I spend the rest of my, I've spent the rest of my days traveling around to soldiers around the world sharing the hope of the love of Jesus, right? Third person. I'm like, what is happening? This person writing it says after the third person, the whole plane breaks into applause and people are shouting like, praise Jesus, hallelujah, on the plane as the whole plane is clapping at these three testimonies that just someone just shared. And the end of the email goes, I, have, I was at the sand and I have believed my whole life for a Jesus movement to come to America. And the testimony, she goes, and now I am seeing it with my eyes. We are heading into a Jesus movement in this nation. And I went, oh my gosh. We are living in another day. The day after the send, God begins to speak to us clearly about two things. One was Kansas City. 
I send an email to Mike Bickle, and I'm almost done here, I promise. And uh, I say to Mike, like, God's, we're, we're wondering about Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. And I know Mike enough to know he's either going to be like, that's a terrible idea, that's a lot of work, and like, we just ended one thing, like, just keep doing missions. I love you, buddy. Like, he's either going to say that, or he's going to be like, this is God, and I knew Mike needed to be the confirmation in some ways. So I email him the day after Orlando, and uh, he emails me right away. And he goes, Andy, you have no idea how significant this is. He goes, we need to talk. And so I plan a trip to go meet them a few weeks later. But in the meantime, the day after the send, we meet together as a collaboration. And as we gather, the Lord says, yep, keep pursuing this Kansas City thing. But the next send actually needs to be in Brazil. And the hunger of the Brazilian people was so evident on that day that we go, okay, let's go after it. So Teo Hayashi, our, one of our collaborators who lives in Brazil, is one of my dearest friends. Um, he, he and his team go, okay, let's do this. We're going to go after it. Our collaboration forms around it. We feel unity. We feel it's God. And so we start dialoguing over stadiums in Brazil while I'm still kind of interacting with Kansas City, but I'm waiting until I can go visit Mike, and it takes me about a month or a month and a half to get there. And so Teo calls me one day, and we're like, he's like, Andy, we got to decide. There are two stadiums in Sao Paulo we should pick between. He goes, one of them's brand new, and it's beautiful, and it holds 45,000 people. He goes, I really like it. He goes, then there's Morumbi Stadium. He goes, it's like like a soccer temple in Brazil. It's historic and it's massive. He goes, it holds like 75,000 people. He goes, I think we should do the 45,000 person one, but let's pray. And I'm like, yeah, I think we should do the 45,000 one as well. And we knew how much work Orlando was. And so we pray and God clearly says, you have no idea how hungry Brazil is. Rent the bigger stadium. And we're like, okay. So I remember Teo, he's, we're doing all the background work. He calls me one day. He goes, dude, I just signed on Murumbi Stadium. And he's so nervous. And Teo's the most courageous man I've ever met in my life. So when he's nervous, I'm like, my gosh, this is a big deal. He goes, Andy, we rented a Morumbi. He goes, I don't know if we can fill it. And in that moment as a friend, you're like, of course we can fill it. And inside I'm thinking, I don't know if we can fill it either. <laughs> so I, I pump him up with faith, you know, and then I, inside I'm like wrestling. Like, what have we just done? We almost died getting to Orlando. And here we are heading to Brazil, this massive stadium. Well, it takes us a few weeks to get everything ready, the media, we, we, you know, we don't have a single dollar that we have invested even to this day in Facebook or Instagram, not a single marketing dollar. To this day, we've still not announced a single speaker or a single band, anything. It takes about a month to get to the point where we can even, you know, make registration live, and we put up one Instagram post, real boring, just literally says, the Send Brazil is open for pre-registration, right? That's all it says. Six hours later, 70,000 people had paid to register register in that stadium. Six hours later, seven months before the send was actually to take place. And they paid. It wasn't even free. This was a paid registration. And the stadium, we're in conversation with them. They go, you broke the record for the fastest the stadium's ever been filled. And we go, oh, we're like, are you kidding me? And we go, who, who held the record? And they go, it was Coldplay and you too. They held the record. And the Sen filled Murumbi faster than you too did or Coldplay without announcing a single speaker or a band or a single dollar in marketing. Just hungry Brazilians believing that now now is the time for their nation. Insanity. Insanity. The wait, out, after that, a waiting list builds. And three, four, five days in, the waiting list is growing by 10,000 people a day. 
to the point where the waiting list gets up to about 60, 70,000 people, and 70, 65,000 have already registered to be a part and paid to be a part of Murumbi. So we're like, well, what do we do? We pray, and God says, rent both stadiums. Rent the small one and the big one. You didn't have faith for it at first if I'd have said it, but now you believe that I'm serious about the momentum in Brazil. So we rent the smaller stadium, and it fills up over the weekend. So now both stadiums fill up, and the waiting list grows to 150,000 Brazilians. Waiting, believing that now is the time and the hour for Brazil. The global south is rising, guys. I'm telling you, God is raising up leaders in the global south like we have never seen before. So we pray again, and God says, rent a third stadium. And so we do all the research, and we rent a third stadium in Brasilia, in the capital. We've opened registration for it, and uh, it, is, it is growing right now as we speak. Three simultaneous stadiums in Brazil, February. Some of you guys are going to Brazil will be on outreach and join us. Um, in, in Brazil, believing, and this is what I'm praying, Brazil has experienced a remar remarkable spiritual awakening in the last generation. 60 million evangelical believers in Brazil today. And our prayer is God give 1% to global missions. Give 1% of the Brazilian awakening to the nations, which would be 600,000 new missionaries. In the whole world, from every country in the world right now, there are 420,000 missionaries in the whole world. This would over double the entire missions force on the planet from Brazil alone when we are believing for it. That on that day, February 8th in 2020 in Brazil, three simultaneous stadiums, that God is going to shake the nation of Brazil and mobilize the nation of Brazil to the nations of the earth like we have never experienced in history. There's something so remarkable coming. Meantime, we're continuing the dialogue with Mike on Kansas City. I finally fly there, and, uh, and I meet with him, and I go, tell me the story, Mike. And he goes, here's the story, and I'm going to give it to you real brief. He says, for, for uh, many years, 35 years, we've had prophecies about Arrowhead Stadium. He shares the same words that Lou had shared with me. And he goes, but there was one of our main prophetic voices um, was, was a man who had spoken these words to us, and many words, and, and many of them came to pass. He was tried and true as a prophetic voice. He goes, but he, he was not healthy in his latter years of life. Like, he wasn't a leader that I, that I felt comfortable with our young leaders being around. He says, so for 15 years, I have chosen not to share the prophecies about Arrowhead Stadium because I didn't want our young leaders seeking out this man, and the man is not in a healthy place to be sought out right now. He says, so I haven't shared these stories in 15 years. Well, right before Orlando, about a week before Orlando, that man dies. Like, he's, he's in his 80s, and he passes away. So Mike now is going to do his funeral because they were close friends. And in, in preparation for his funeral, for the first time in 15 years, he shares with the IHOP KC staff the stories of the prophecies over Arrowhead Stadium. For the first time in 15 years, he has not shared about this billion soul harvest that it would be a catalyst to. Signs, wonders, and miracles that it would be a catalyst to. All these 30, 35-year-old prophetic words, he's sharing them for the first time in 15 years. He goes, I share with our staff, for the first time in 15 years, I check my email, and I have an email from you asking if we should take the send to Kansas. Kansas City to Arrowhead Stadium. He goes, this is God. This is absolutely God. And this is us stepping into together the promises and the prophecies of the greatest harvest in human history. And somehow Kansas City and Arrowhead Stadium are catalytic to it. And so we go on this road and go, okay, we're going to do it. Kansas City as well. Fall 2020. This is crazy. Um, the stadium, we meet with them. They're like, this is awesome. We love you guys. Let's do it. 
a month, two months goes by, they get a hold of us, they say, sorry, you can't do the Send and Arrowhead this year. We, uh, a concert contacted us, and uh, we can make a lot more money, and um, we just can't, we don't, sorry, we don't have space anymore, we don't have time, and we're like, there is no way. God gave us so many confirmations this is happening, and our community just begins to pray. Months go by, months go by. Well, uh, uh, what, three weeks ago, a month ago, we, we, a friend of mine sends me a dream. I promise you, almost done. And he says in the dream, Andy, I had a dream, and you called a 24-hour prayer day for a breakthrough over Arrowhead Stadium. And he knew that we, our date had been revoked. And he goes, I don't know, maybe we should do it. So I go, let's do it. So we call a 24-hour prayer day here in Kona. My friend in D.C., they did it. Um, circuit Riders did it in Orange County. IHOP jumped in. Bunch of communities jump in. And we all take 24 hours to pray for a breakthrough over Arrowhead Stadium. Four days later, the stadium calls us and says, we are so excited to give you guys a date in October 2020. We're so excited to work with you guys. Not even mentioning that they had told us for months and months and months we couldn't have a date. They go, we 100% guarantee you a date in the fall 2020. We are excited to work together with you. You know, let's go. That's like, that happened like three weeks ago. Last part of the story. Simultaneous to all this happening, I can't get rid of this nudge in my spirit that Brazil is going to be absolutely epic, but that we can't ignore the rest of South America, and there is a window that is open over South America in this time. And I'm like, but this is insane, God. We did one last year in 2019, February, and we almost all died. It was the hardest thing any of us had ever done. Smiles on our faces, but we almost all died. And, and now here we are planning three stadiums in Brazil, in February, and in October, we're going to Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. We are so in over our heads, it's laughable. Like, it's one thing to be, like, drowned an inch underwater. It's another thing to be drowned, like, 20 feet underwater, right? That's where we are. And I'm like, God, we're so overwhelmed. But I can't get rid of this sense in my spirit that, we, that now is the hour for the global south. And the Lord begins to speak to me about Buenos Aires and Argentina. And he begins to speak to me about the significance that we, there's a ricochet that will come from Brazil immediately. Immediately into Argentina, I'm like, God, there is no way. Like, we will die. Teo and I start talking about it. We go, man, it feels like God's in this. We get the rest of the collaboration. They're like, I don't know. It feels like God. And we feel like we're essentially supposed to go 10 weeks later after Brazil to go right to Argentina and do another send in Buenos Aires, believing that the Spanish and the Portuguese population of the entire continent are going to get lit up with the message of revival and missions. So I called my wife from Virginia Beach, literally like two or three weeks ago when I was there. I go, babe, we need a confirmation. We need a sign. We pray together. We agree together. God, give us a sign. A few hours later, I get a text message from one of our campus leaders, have no idea even what we're thinking about, goes, hey, I have a friend, they just finished a 21-day fast, they sent me this random note about a move of God coming to South America, and of course, I thought about the San Brazil, so I thought you'd be encouraged to hear this, but the message they got was that there was something even potentially more significant that was going to come out of Argentina, so I don't know if you're praying about going to Argentina after Brazil, but let this be a confirmation, it is the word of the Lord to go to Argentina, and I'm like, we're going to Argentina. <laughs> so, so literally last week, last week we confirm and April 25th, the San Buenos Aires will happen in Argentina 10 weeks after the San Sao Paulo or the San Brazil and then in October in Kansas City. Now what I'm sharing is not about the San. It's about the hour that we live in. 
It's about the most activated hour in all of human history, and your story is weaved into this hour. It's not about the brand name. It's not about an organization. It's not about any specific people. This is about a whole generation stepping into the most activated hour in all of human history. And it was for such a time as this that God brought you here. It was for such a time as this that you could have jumped right into a nursing job but said, instead, I'm just going to throw it all to the wind. I'm going to throw it all to God, and I might end up being a nurse in Ethiopia now. I don't know where I'm going to live. But it's such a time as this that you left your homes, left your families, left your boyfriend, left your girlfriend, maybe even wondering, what the heck am I actually doing right now? I don't have the money for it. I don't know anyone there. Why am I doing this? I want to tell you why you're doing it, because you're responding to the nudge of the Holy Spirit, that you were made for more, and that you are a catalyst and a leader in this hour of history that we are in right now, and that you are a catalyst to hundreds and thousands of others being lit up with the same fire that's in your heart. God is anointing a generation to see every last remaining unreached people group on the earth worship Jesus. He is anointing a generation. Come on. He's anointing a generation to turn the tide on the university campuses of our nations. He's anointing a generation to reach the high schools of our nations. He's anointing a generation to end the epidemic of divorce in our nations. He's anointing. It's not a good idea. It's not wishful thinking. You are anointed for this. You were born for this. You were set apart for this. From your mother's womb, you were set apart for this. You are not an accident. You were not just your parents' good idea. You were God's idea. And from your mother's womb, you were set apart for the hour that we live in right now where he is catalyzing you as a leader in this hour of history where we will cross more great commission lines than have ever been crossed in all of human history. And could it be, could it be at the end of our generation, when we pass this mantle, this baton onto the next generation, could it be that there's not a single remaining unreached people group on the planet because of our yes to Jesus? Could it be that our home states and our home nations, could it be that 20 years from now, Europe is in revival? Could it be right now that 10 years from now, what we can't even imagine in America and Canada and North America is taking place? Could it be that we can't even begin to fathom what God's about to do? We were afraid of the 45,000 person thing, stadium, and God goes, you have no idea what I'm about to do. Please don't limit me to your little faith. I am far bigger than you realize and I'm intending to do far more than you understand. And I will end with this. Why don't you stand because we're going to pray. If these, you got to know for me, and I've shared enough with you for you to realize this, is I, I am an introvert. I am like from the tiny little town in Alaska. There is nothing in me that would have looked and gone like, someday we'll go after filling stadiums. I'm the guy that would be like, hey, I'll just hang at home and watch the live stream. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I can be in my home. And I can watch the live stream, and I will pray, and I will, you know, shaka baba all day long. But, like, be in the stadium with tens of thousands of other people? Like, let someone else do that. Like, you got to know that's, that's whom I am at a personality level. But God has other plans, right? Our personalities are not a box to live in. Um, we are committed to obedience to the end of the day. But you got to know, for me, it's not about filling stadiums. When I think about a stadium being filled in Sao Paulo, but when I think about a stadium filled in Brazil, you know, or in Buenos Aires, or when I think about the Send Kansas City, or when I think about Orlando, when I think about any of these gatherings, 
I'm not thinking about how cool. Think of the photos. Think of the Instagram shots. Think of like the hype. Think of the noise. I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about every single one of those people in that stadium has the potential to change hundreds and thousands of lives. I'm thinking about that if all those stadiums I just talked about in 2020, which now would be five between Brazil, Argentina, and Kansas City, if they fill, that is 320,000 people that would be in a stadium. Why? Because of their commitment to the Great Commission and their love for Jesus. And I'm not thinking about what happens in the stadium. I'm thinking about 320,000 people that get lit on fire, leave the stadium, and do something about it. That's what I'm thinking about. And anyone of those 320,000 is the next you. Any one of those high schoolers or university students that comes is the next you who is willing to lay it all aside and go, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go and I'll do anything. And I would do it for that alone, that more yous would be empowered to live what God has called you to live, that you would feel the fire in your bones. And that, to me, is the significance of these gatherings, not the numbers, not the reputation, not the photos. It's that hundreds of thousands of yous would be mobilized, activated, empowered, and believed in that you can change the world around you. And that is worth it. And when I think about these stadiums filled, I think about the person that I met in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan that has still never heard the name of Jesus except for that one little five-minute conversation. When I think about these stadiums filled, I think about the tour guide that I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with in North Korea that had never heard that there was a God that could possibly love him. I think about the person I remember meeting in the middle of the Himalayas after like having hiked maybe 60 miles who lived nowhere near any town, one man and a house, and I think he had three wives, and, and, and he's living out there in the middle of nowhere. Who's going to share the gospel with him? Who's going to tell him that Jesus loves him? Who's going to tell those ladies that there was a Messiah that died to set them free from superstition, from fear, from death, and from sin? And when I think of the hour we live in, that's what I dream about. I think about the lonely student in the dorm room wrestling with suicidal thoughts that is just waiting for one person who loves them enough to come and bring them the hope of Jesus. I think about our inner cities of our nations that are waiting for a display of extravagant love. I think about all the ones that are sitting there right now, real time, literally scattered across the earth. Literally three billion people will go to bed tonight and they've never even heard the sweet name of Jesus one time. And I think about them that they could go to bed with the hope of eternal life. And when I think about the hour we live in, a tent that is full of fiery-eyed revivalists, when I think about what God's doing in Brazil and South America and what he's going to do in America and is doing in Kansas City, when I think of the circuit riders going to campuses all over the world now, I think about the ones that are going to discover the Messiah who loves them. I think about the ones whose lives will forever be changed. I think about your brothers and your sisters that you're burdened for right now. I think about your parents. I think about all those lives that will have eternal life and will experience the love of Jesus because of our simple obedience. That's what I think about. What are we about to step into? And what has God called you into that I promise you your brain would pop if he said it all right now? It would explode. If he unveiled the future to you, death by brain explosion because of how crazy it's going to be. And I promise you, it is impossible to exaggerate what God's about to do because it's bigger than we can imagine. When this Brazil thing happened, it was a firm, loving rebuke to my unbelief. 
He goes, you had faith for 45,000. I had faith for multiple stadiums across the nation. Who's leading this thing, God or me, right? Who's leading this thing? I'm telling you, there is something so much bigger happening. But the big is still about the one. Come on, guys. It's about the one. Because three months from now, some of you will step off a plane in Kenya and have the privilege to see people that have never met Jesus meet him for the first time. Because three months from now, some of you get off a plane in Brazil and head into a favela where they have rarely maybe heard the name of Jesus, and you'll be the first display of the love of God they have ever seen. Because three months from now, some of you will be hiking through the Himalayas, and you will literally encounter people where in 2,000 years of their generational line have never known there's a God who loves them. And you will be the first time they have heard of Jesus. Because three months from now, you will be seeing blind eyes open, deaf ears open, miracles because of your simple obedience and your love for Jesus. This is the hour that we live in right now. This is the hour you have been set apart for. And every one of you is qualified because he qualifies you. Because he qualifies you. Because he qualifies you. About four or five years ago, we took our first trek into Nepal on this, pro- this uh, vision to take Bibles to every home of these remote districts. And I took my son, who at the time was probably nine, and my dad, who you'll meet, is a legend. He was in his late 60s, and a bunch of friends. We all went together. We trekked for a day to get to our first village. And it was, took us all day. It was, so, it was such a long day. It was incredible, but it was a long day. We were exhausted. I'm like, man, I got my dad up here. I hope he makes it. I got my nine-year-old. Like, is this irresponsible? And we're going all day because we're told there's a village way up there. And if we will just keep going, we can reach that village. It took us all day. And at night, the sun's setting. We come over the final mountain pass. And I look down, knowing there's a village coming, but no idea anything about it. And I look down, and there are six homes in this village. And I'm like, we flew all the way from America. We flew in a sketchy plane that barely worked to an airport that should have never been landed in in remote Nepal. We trekked all day long with backpacks full of Bibles. And we come over the ridge and there are six homes in that village. And all I can think to myself is they are so worth it. They are so worth it. And we go down in that village. We show the Jesus film. We show them the Jesus film, and they, for the first time in their generational line, see that there is a God who heals sickness, forgives sins, and sets the captive free. They're watching it. They're hearing it in their language. Their eyes are lit up. They've never heard this before. And that night, the next morning, we give the man we stayed with an audio Bible in his language, and we watch him put the earphones in and listen, and his face just lights up. It was one of those people who smiled so big, their eyes smiled. Everything in their face was smiling as he was hearing the words of life for the first time in his generational line. And we leave, we trek, you know, go to the next village the next day, and we hit about three or four villages on that whole trip. A year later, a team goes out to take photos and document the fruit of this Bible distribution. Did it really work? Were lives really impacted? What did they do with the Bibles? And they start capturing testimonies, and I don't know where they go, and I don't know what they did, but a few months later, my friend comes up to me and drops a magazine in front of me that that, that group had made for their donors. And on the cover of the magazine is the man with the smiley eyes. And I'm like, that's so crazy. I stayed in his house. And I open it up and read the story. And after we left, the man was so moved by the words of life and the words of the gospel that on his own, he had fully committed his life to Jesus. On his own. And then he was so moved by the gospel message and what he had heard that we didn't even know this, but he got a hold of some believers that were way down where he'd started our hike. And the picture of him on the front of the magazine was the smiley eyes, the smiley face, and a giant basket strapped to his back full of Bibles. 
because now he was hiking into the whole region, distributing the words of life so that his people could experience what he was experiencing. When, when I think about stadiums, I think about him. I think about his children. And I think about the people that have now heard the words of life because of him. And I think about you heading out into the spheres of society, into the nations of the earth, and never growing dim in your fire for the rest of your life. That's what I think about when I think about the hour we live in, when I think about the sand, when I think about these gatherings. And I just think that there'd be no better way for us to end our first week together. You'll be together with all the DTSs tomorrow. This is our last time in the tent together. I think there'd be no better way to end for us then to declare before all of heaven to declare before each other, to declare before all the powers of darkness that this gospel of the kingdom is spreading to the entire earth, which doesn't mean everyone's going to get saved. It just means everyone's going to have the opportunity to hear the love of Jesus. It means every people group is going to be exposed to this wonderful good news. And I think there'd be no better way for us. And I just want to say to you guys, you are the tip of the spear on this. You, you are forerunners in this. You are forerunners. And five years from now, you'll look back and you'll go, oh my gosh, thousands are going to the nations. And you'll realize it was partly your obedience that inspired them to go. It was your story that inspired them to go. It was your willingness to leave everything behind that led what right now is a room of 350 or 400 that will eventually be not just in Kona, but rooms of thousands across the earth who are willing to go anywhere for the sake of the gospel, and you'll look back and go, oh my gosh, I had a part to play in that. You are a catalyst to this hour we're living in. Your obedience will inspire many others. And I think we should end our time together with a shout in this tent that this gospel of the kingdom is going to spread to the whole earth. That in this hour, we would have the privilege, come on young leaders, fiery-eyed revivalists, catalysts, that we would make a declaration to ourselves, to each other, to the heavenly realms, to the Father, and to the nations of the earth, that this gospel of the kingdom is spreading all over the earth. And that we are all in to do our part in our weakness, in our immaturity, in our insecurities, but filled with love baptized in the confidence of his love, filled with extravagant love, that there is nowhere where we are not willing to go for the sake of the gospel. Are you guys in for that? I know that's who's in the tent. I know that's who God brought here, and I know that's who you are. So I'm going to count to three, and we're going to roar in this place. And this doesn't need to be an 11-minute roar. I didn't share that so that you would break the record. This is just, this is real. This is not hype. This is sincere. I want you to let something loose in your heart that maybe you've never let loose before. And what you're letting loose is faith for the hour we live in and that you have a role to play in this hour. That you are a leader that God is raising up. And that we love him and the lost so much there is nowhere we wouldn't go for the sake of the gospel. So on three, unleash whatever's inside of you. You guys ready for this? One, two, three.
Yes, God. Yes, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, thank you for all the ones whose lives are going to be forever changed because of the obedience of this room. We're so honored to be alive right now. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. In your name, amen. Amen. Man, give someone a hug next to you. Give them a high five and tell them we live in the craziest hour of all of history. Okay, guys, just a couple quick announcements. Um, Today is the first day of tracks. We'll announce locations on Workplace. Tracks start at 1. And tonight is Thursday night meeting in the Ohana Court, 6 p.m. It is mandatory. Okay, have a good lunch.
Prince of heaven, King. 